Well, hello everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. We have a, um, a very important book to launch, uh, Mariam Salehi's book, Transitional Justice in Process, Plans and Politics uh, in Tunisia. Uh, this is an event organized by the LSE Middle East Center. I'm your chair. Uh, my name is Yavor Rangelov. I'm a research fellow at LSE Ideas. My work on, in sort of transitional justice and, and related fields has focused on other regions, Afghanistan, the Balkans, um, Syria as well. Uh, and I'm also very interested in some of the global developments uh, and sort of um, analytical, uh, larger analytical issues that emerge from particular cases. And I think it's again, uh, a, a pleasure to, to chair this discussion because Mariam's book very much speaks to, to these uh, themes. Uh, apart from Mariam, we have also uh, a discussion, um, uh, Charles Tripp, Professor Charles Tripp, and I will introduce both of them shortly. But before that, just very quickly, a few points of housekeeping. Um, we will run for approximately uh, one hour with a 15 to 20 minute presentation by uh, Mariam talking about the book and then Charles responding for around 10 minutes. Uh, please uh, also note that if you'd like to ask a question, um, you should type your questions into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen uh, and not the chat box. We will then address the questions uh, to the speakers because this, question, this event uh, is recorded. Uh, and apart from it being recorded, it is also live streamed on Facebook. Uh, if you'd like to tweet uh, about the event, you can do so using the hashtag LSC Middle East. So welcome again to uh, everyone and to our speakers. Very brief introductions. Uh, Mariam Salehi is a researcher who works at an intersection of peace and conflict studies, international politics, and international political uh, sociology. She's broadly interested in international processes of change, uh, transitional and other forms of justice, and also the production and circulation of knowledge and ideas. And she's currently a research group leader at the Free University in Berlin. Charles Tripp, our discussant, is Professor Emeritus of Politics with reference to the Middle East and North Africa. He's also a fellow of the British Academy and his research interests include the nature of autocracy, state and resistance, uh, in the Middle East, the politics of Islamic identity and the relationship between art and power. So we are very much looking forward to your interventions, questions uh, and engagement uh, with our presenters. Uh, but first, uh, Mariam, thank you again for doing this with us. And uh, please, uh, please start uh, with uh, presenting and introducing the book. Yeah, thank you, Yavo, for the um, nice introduction. I think I start with sharing my screen um, because I have a presentation. Um, I assume you can see the presentation now, right? Okay. Um, yeah, th thank you. Thank you so much for for the invitation and and for being here with me today. Um, yeah. Um, as Yavo already said, I'm, I'm going to um, talk about my book, Transitional Justice in Process, Plans and Politics in Tunisia. And 
this is how um, the book is supposed to look like. I haven't seen it, but um, I think, yeah, it's it's supposed to be out and I hope that I can hold it in my hands um, soon. So what I'm going to do today is that I will say a few words um, on the research process and, and the context in which um, the study um, um, has been, been done. Then um, I will talk a bit about the, the Tunisian context as, as well as um, the context with regard to transitional justice in which the study is situated. Um, then I will talk about um, the empirical yeah, the empirical heart of the book, which I call Plants and Politics in Tunisia, which I um, separate into three stages, initiating, designing and performing transitional justice. And then I will close with some concluding remarks and an outlook. Um, so I started working on the Tunisian transitional justice process um, in, in early 2014. So um, I did my first field research in Tunisia in spring 2014. That was after the um, transitional justice law had been passed by the National Constituent Assembly at the end of 2013, but before the truth commissioners um, for the Truth and Dignity Commission had been nominated. So I was there while this nomination um, um, process was going on and um, could, could uh, yeah, then accompany the process over um, a longer period in time. So I usually went back to Tunisia for short or longer field research stays um, around like twice a year um, until 2018. Um, I also did some field research in the United States. And then um, in 2020, while I was finishing the, finishing the book, I had to do follow-up research by phone and video because of the pandemic. Um, the data the book is based on is mainly um, drawn from interviews with um, politicians, civil society representatives, um, government uh, representatives and staff, um, tooth commissioners, uh, representatives of international organizations and NGOs, the media and so forth, and um, some observations of like tooth commission events, conferences, workshops, these kind of things. Um, so this time frame means that I was researching um, a process without an endpoint while it was evolving. And um, this um, research setting also um, has some theoretical implications for my study, um, since I then decided to focus on the processual dynamics themselves. This led to a very simple research question in the end. How did the Tunisian transitional justice process evolve and why? And um, what I then did um, through this um, process lens and, and informed by my empirical data was that I identified four processual characteristics um, of the transitional justice process. And um, these um, processual characteristics that I identified are um, the interplay between the plant and the unplanned, the non-linearity of the process and the simul um, sometimes simultaneously occurring trends and counter trends, the international interconnectedness, as well as conflicts and frictions that were shaping the process. <clears throat> I just want to say a few words um, about um, the tropes of transition that um, we could see over the last years. Um, and um, I mean, what one could see is that Tunisia on the one hand was often presented as um, the poster child of the so-called Arab Spring. And then on the other hand, there were also these tropes of the counter-revolution um, that, uh, that were coming up. 
And the same um, dynamic is uh, kind of true for the transitional justice process. On the one hand, it uh, was presented as a model transitional justice process. And on the other hand, as um, a process that was rather fostering conflict. And so we could see these tropes of success and failure um, emerging in the debate. And what I would like to do in, in the book is that um, I would say that the story is more complex and all these features um, that would define success or failure, um, that they can actually exist alongside each other. And um, yeah, um, so as you could see from the time frame, the research um, for the book was done and also like finished, the writing was finished before the coup and um, that happened uh, in the mid of last year. But um, what we can see from these tropes and that um, the dynamics were existing alongside each other um, over the last years is that um, the coup is not a sudden diversion of an otherwise linear tra transition. So, I mean, of course, it, it, it's like an important um, um, point in, in, in time that, um, yeah, um, seems, to, seems to have brought the democratization process at least um, to, to some kind of ending, but, but it's not that everything beforehand um, was like going uh, towards like a linear um, um, democratic um, trajectory. So I think this is important to keep in mind. And um, um, yeah. Um, so um, yeah, going back to, to um, Tunisia in, in, in 2000, 2011. And, and the question is, um, what past actually needs dealing with? And, and what, um, what does the transition justice process actually, um, um, yeah, uh, what is it, what it is, what, why is it there for, basically? And we can see that in, um, in uh, 2011, there was a revolutionary window of opportunity that made it possible that um, such a transition justice project could actually be established. But this doesn't mean that there was a clean slate um, in the country and the transitional justice project was happening in a vacuum. Rather, on the contrary, I mean, there were conflicts and cleavages in the country, um, and this is why um, a transitional justice project was necessary, but these conflicts and cleavages, they were also mirrored in the project. Um, the Tunisian transitional justice project um, is very uh, comprehensive. Um, based on a holistic model. And um, so it captures actually many of these um, conflicts, cleavages and justice problems that need, de uh, need dealing with. Um, and and this, this is in, uh, on several dimensions. Um, so on a temporal dimension, um, it almost goes back 60 years and also deals with um, political um, violations, but also with socioeconomic ones. Um, my aim with the book is to mainly contribute to the strand of transitional justice literature that focuses on the domestic and international politics of transitional justice. And um, as with the um, Tunisian context, um, the transitional justice project is also not situated in a, yeah, in a vacuum with regard to the so-called world time context. So it is situated in a particular world time context in history and global politics. Um, the project was introduced with strong international involvement, mainly by the International Center for Transitional Justice, the United Nations Development Program, and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Um, and at that point in time, um, the holistic approach, which deals with like a 
um, large array of, of, of violations um, emerged as the dominant dogma, determining um, what I would call the social technological offering of the so-called justice industry. And um, this means that these, these features and these ideas, um, they um, yeah, came to Tunisia through um, this international support. And I would argue that they shaped how transitional justice came to look like in Tunisia. Um, but also these ideas um, of the holistic approach um, uh, fell on fertile ground. They fitted the justice problems very well um, because, I mean, for example, socioeconomic uh, marginalization, they were was so, um, um, these were so prominent issues in Tunisia so that it would have been kind of odd to leave them out. Leave them out. Um, and it also served some political interests to have such a broad, um, such a broad mandate mirrored on this holistic approach. Um, I brought you a schematic timeline. I'm not going to talk about that now, but just so that you know that we can always go back to it later, just to show you that um, I've been analyzing the transitional justice um, project in relation to the transition, the political transition, it should actually ease and make more just. And I've identified three stages um, of transitional justice that are temporally defined, but analytically informed. And I would call them initiating, designing, and performing transitional justice. And now I will just give you um, some insights in, into some glimpses of the empirical material I have. Um, so um, talking about initiating transitional justice, um, we could see that um, the first measures um, of transition justice were already introduced um, yeah, almost directly after the revolution in 2011. One of my interview partners, um, a civil society representative would say in 2011, the priority of priorities was transitional justice. Um, and these ad hoc measures, there were, for example, trials or first betting efforts, um, also first reparation efforts. And they started yeah, almost directly after the revolution. And that was also the point in time when um, international transitional justice expertise started to come into the country. These transitional justice measures, they um, interplayed with other measures of transitional governance and with fluctuating political and social dynamics, for example, because, um, I mean, vetting efforts uh, would also determine who could run for office, trials would determine who, who would be in prison or who could participate in politics, just to give you some, some very um, simple examples. Um, so we could actually see a trend here towards seeking accountability, but we could also see a counter trend that was identified by many of my interview partners, that there was no willingness to dismantle the deeper structures of um, what they would call the system. I, I brought you a bit of a lengthy quote here that I shortened already, but that I would like to read out briefly. Is um, One of my interview partners, a human rights activist said, there's a lack of will to really seek accountability in these regards. There's a kind of deal, maybe a tacit deal, which is not really clear for us, but there's a feeling that there's a kind of deal between the old guard of the Ben Ali regime or the old establishment who still have kind of power of hands or infiltration within the system. And that was already in spring um, 2014 before the Truth and Dignity Commission um, would um, like even start its work. Um, and with regard to, vet, um, to vetting, um, a transitional justice professional would say, and, and with regard to the judiciary, 
They screwed some magistrates at some point, but there were no clear criteria. They had no clear idea whether they wanted to do proper vetting. So already at this very early stage, there were doubts um, that there was a willingness to um, actually dismantle um, the system at a deeper level. But um, kind of in parallel, um, starting in, in 2012 with the so-called National Dialogue on Transitional Justice, uh, a participatory consultation process, um, there was a development of a carefully planned institutionalized transitional justice project um, that culminated in um, the transitional justice law that, as I said before, was um, passed by the National Constituent Assembly at the end of 2013. Um, like a former minister said in an interview that um, for the first time in Tunisia, we found ourselves with a law project that was not developed behind closed doors. So he was actually praising this participatory lawmaking process. Um, international transitional justice professionals closely accompanied the consultations and also the law, law drafting. Um, and what I could sense in my interviews was that there was always um, this impression that there was a thin line between um, support and interference. Um, while most of my interview partners from the Tunisian side would say that they actually felt very supportive. Um, yeah, there, there was always this negotiation of like how in how far um, or to what extent um, do you follow um, the advice and um, um, so what we can see from this quote here is um, that um, Tunisian actors received like plenty of training on what transitional justice actually is or is supposed to be on what should it do, but also on like technical um, skills like debate moderation and report writing. Um, but um, this, this sense of this um, thin line that was also identified by, um, by my interview partners from, um, from the international transitional justice professionals. Um, so one of them said, um, at the beginning, we just wanted to provide technical assistance, but then we realized that this is not possible when you're pushing for a human rights agenda, which is a political issue. Now we're more outspoken about that. And um, what is interesting here is that um, while at the beginning um, the international support was, was like clearly welcomed and also invited by um, the government at that time, um, with the um, change in government in, in 2014 at the latest um, and the shifts in in power, there also came a shift, shift in political preferences. And um, one of my interview partners would say, what actually happened is that the system that ruled Tunisia since 2014 tried to block the transition process and transitional justice. The government issued a clear, clear order. All departments of the state were not to deal with the Truth and Dignity Commission. So we could clearly see that there, yeah, there was a decline in political will, um, which also had to do with the narrowing political cleavages with the different national unity governments, um, so-called national unity governments that were introduced. But um, I would say that looking at the performance of transitional justice in its double meaning, so um, with regard to the meaning of like carrying something out, but also with the meaning of like mise-en-scene um, that, um, in, in the outward orientation of performance, um, that it's quite remarkable that the, the process was actually um, able to, to, to continuously being performed. Um, so the Truth and Dignity Commission was doing its work um, despite the political challenges. 
And, and they um, one good example is, is that they were able to do public hearings that were broadcast on national TV and which were later then described to me by a truth commissioner as um, their best gain. Um, what I would also point out as, as interesting is that um, within the setting of declining political will, the same actors sometimes simultaneously um, showed support for the transitional justice um, process and, and um, renounced it. Um, and, and then there, there was also another dynamic which, which influenced um, like the performing of transitional justice and that were conflicts and frictions between the Truth and Dignity Commission um, and the political and civil society, but also um, internal quarrels within the commission. And I think this is really important because um, it influenced how um, the transitional justice project with, with its central um, institution, the Truth and Dignity Commission, um, was perceived and um, it, it also cost, cost them a lot of trust. And um, oftentimes the president of the Truth and Dignity Commission is blamed for that. But um, one of my interview partners would say that um, while all the other commissioners um, would like to demonize um, the president of the commission, um, they also did things wrong. So, so we have um, these like complex dy dynamics of conflict between um, the transitional justice institutions, especially the Truth Commission and, um, and politics and civil society, but also these internal quarrels that would somehow um, hamper the process. Um, <clears throat> as um, some of you may know, um, the commission um, finished its work. Um, the um, final report was um, initially published on the commission's website. Um, in, in March uh, 2019, and then, then finally over a year, a year later published in the official Gazette. Um, we don't know whether any of the recommendations will actually um, be implemented. And um, I would say that we can't entirely escape these questions of success and failure here. And looking at what is going on at the moment in Tunisia, um, there's somewhat of a grim outlook, which has something to do with um, yeah, like um, the current president cracking down on 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 like civil society, on on the judiciary as well. On um, I mean, um, there there recently um, was like um, yeah, um, the the former head of the Tunisian Bar Association, Kileni, um, was put in prison. Who actually uh, was responsible recently for um, for the commission that that should have like. Um, taken care of uh, of transitional justice and with, um, who was described as my interview partners as, as actually being um, there, there was put some hope uh, uh, in him of, of like driving the process forward. Um, but I would like to rather close with a positive remark. And this is from one of my in interview partners who would say there's a revolutionary and radical notion in the report. Um, and, and, and she was talking about how, um, yeah, actually these like um, systematic um, uh, connections are made um, like between um, uh, yeah, uh, dictatorial violence, but also then colonial violence and that um, the report is actually um, innovative in that regard. And I would say that it should open debates and not close them both in Tunisia and with regard to transitional justice more general. And um, I hope by, um, by the performance of transitional justice in in, in the double meaning of like the outward orientation, um, but but also that it has been carried out to some degree, that there could be some constitutive consequences 
um, of something um, as it is purported to be. Um, thank you so much for your attention. And um, I will close here now and um, looking forward to questions and debates. And um, thanks very yeah. much. Thanks very much, uh, Mariam, for giving us such a rich and sort of nuanced understanding of, of your working, also a uh, very concise way. So without further ado, Charles, over to you. Oh, thank you very much. And, and thank you, Mariam, really, for an excellent book and a, a very good presentation. It's quite a challenge to summarize a whole book in 20 minutes. And I think you did really, really well because you brought out many of the points that uh, or the themes that I wanted to address. I'm going to just uh, raise a few uh, and clearly it's not uh, by any means engaging with the full richness of the book but I think one of the things that comes across in reading the book is that the periods you spent uh, collecting empirical evidence the empirical research really pays off I mean I think it comes out extraordinarily interestingly and well and I think that's one of the great strengths of the book because it also goes to the heart of it seemed to me one of the major arguments you're making which is that uh, transitional justice as a process and as the institutions that are associated with it in Tunisia, but of course anywhere else, is a political process. And that's sometimes not the way it's written about or framed. And I think that the empirical evidence that you put forward uh, certainly bears that out and proves it. So there are just three areas I think that uh, I wanted to just highlight, I suppose, rather than to question, uh, because I think I agree very largely with your, your um, um, your uh, conclusions. The first is the whole question about um, this tension between, as it were, an international view of what transitional justice should be about and the reality of what happens when you set up an institution in any country in Tunisia, the Truth and Dignity Commission. So it's getting a sense of that tension. Uh, and sometimes you're, you come across quite ambivalently about it perhaps informed by your uh, interviews uh, with uh, civil society actors in Tunisia. The second is, uh, I think that comes out really strongly and interestingly, is the contingency of politics. That is the ways in which uh, Tunisian politics was also, of course, going through, um, I wouldn't say a transition because I'm very wary of the whole notion of transition and transitology. It was going through processes of change, put it that way, uh, that in some ways, overtook and in some ways made redundant aspects of the transitional justice process itself and of course it's that that working out which is interesting um and the, and the the third i think was something that comes up uh, very well in the way you talk about and you write about it uh is the are the widening issues that the transitional justice process raised and of course they could not help but be deeply um problematic for some Tunisians and uh, deeply encouraging for others. So it was, in a sense, setting the scene for a kind of contention, which I think is good. So uh, all those areas, I think, were uh, are, are well brought out. In the first one, I, I think perhaps I would like to ask you or ask you to develop a little bit more this question of, on the one hand, there was, as you suggested, quite an international push for it. And there was for setting up a, a transitional justice process. And also, of course, there were Tunisians who were very uh, keen that that should happen. But as you quite rightly said, in the immediate aftermath of the flight of the dictator, Ben Ali, there were lots of processes going on in Tunisia, which had no, owed nothing to international processes, which were about justice, which were about trying to redress and address uh, ills and evils of the previous 
at least few years um, of people who had suffered them. And of course, it becomes extended in some way. So there, there seemed to be some, I suppose, to, to draw you out a bit on the, the degree to which the international, uh, what you call the transitional justice industry, uh, helps or hinders or suggests things that were inappropriate or not, or whether uh, the Tunisians who became involved in that took what was useful and left behind the rest. So it, it gets some sense of that, that aspect, because I think one of the things that uh, you become, and I think that the um, that phrase you used and you highlighted it in the, um, in the PowerPoint, which was this notion of a revolutionary window of opportunity, which some people have argued, not just to do with transitional justice, uh, has been blown, has been let close, as it were, in the last 10 years. And so there is an interesting question there about what was possible in 2011, 12, 13, what was, um, what was less possible thereafter in transitional justice, but I, I look at it also in Tunisian politics more generally, the, the revolution that never happened as it were. And so there's an interesting set of questions there, I think. Um, the second, and I suppose it's related to that, is this question of the contingency of politics. That is the ways in which the transitional justice procedures and institutions, just as in any country, uh, don't appear, as you quite rightly said, out of nowhere, nor are they imposed upon a tabula rasa. They are Tunisian institutions staffed by Tunisians who've got experience in the judiciary and so on. And that has a history, as we know, and sometimes a very problematic history for many Tunisians who found themselves in the, the toils, if you like, of the Tunisian, so, uh, Tunisian justice system. So there is an interesting question there about in highlighting the justice that needs to be done, do you therefore um, demote those who have hitherto been responsible for uh, administering it? And to some extent, there was an answer from the Truth and Dignity Commission was to set up their own um, uh, tribunals, as it were. But as, we, as you said in the, in the book, and as everyone knows, uh, they've been somewhat slow to deal with the 60,000 or so cases that have come or complaints that have come before them. Uh, and also, as I think you point out, and, and in a sense draws out this contingency of politics, that state organs were not cooperative and became less and less so when they realized that the person at the head of the state, Beji Kaid Sebsi, was himself indicted by the report for the role that he played in the repression in Tunisia when he was Minister of Interior in the 1960s. So, you know, he wasn't that keen and he was openly critical of the Truth and Dignity Commission. Uh, and so you wonder whether one of the problems of uh, the transitional justice process is that the process needs to be institutionalized, but those institutions are themselves colonized by a Tunisian state that is by no means uh, uh, radically changed. So I think there's an interesting question and set of tensions there. And, and the final question uh, area I thought was really interesting was the way in which the I think you called it the holistic notion of transitional justice that, of course, it, it, and that's what the immediate um, aspects of that in 2011 uh, were, which was dealing with people who were victims of the violence of the security forces in the revolution, uh, people who immediately suffered in the years two before that. And then it starts to extend uh, for all sorts of interesting reasons and really takes in you could argue the modern history of Tunisia and therefore the political imbalance. And there's an interesting irony in this is that while the transitional justice 
procedure, the Truth and Dignity Commission was hearing about, quite rightly, uh, the horrendous discrimination and marginalization and the consequence of that for people's lives and life chances uh, in the 1960s and 70s, that was still going on in Tunisia. You know, the, the, the marginalization and discrimination against people from the South, from the West, uh, from people from certain classes produced, as we know, while the Truth and Dignity Commission was sitting, uh, huge protests uh, and very uh, uh, heartfelt protests about um, um, unemployment, but also about marginalization. And these were the very things that the, uh, the, the Truth and Dignity Commission was trying to address historically, but of course, outside the window that was happening in the, in the squares of Tunisia uh, in different cities. And so there's an interesting question there about once you broaden out the scope of transitional justice, you realize you're taking into account a much wider question, which is what does it mean to be a citizen? of the Tunisian state. What does its citizenship mean? And clearly they could address historical injustices and there were clearly people who were unwilling uh, to have that addressed too carefully, such as the former president and others, but there were also in a sense the, con the contemporary injustice. So of course it becomes deeply involved in the contentious politics of contemporary Tunisia. So I thought that was really interesting and it comes out, uh, you could develop it to some extent in your in your book, but in a sense, the book lays a groundwork for thinking about that. It's not a process apart. It is actually integral to the creation of citizenship and to the rights of citizenship and the realization of the rights of citizenship uh, in, in modern Tunisia. And I think that that is one of the extraordinary interesting things about the, the testimonies, which I saw uh, on, on uh, the recordings of some of them, unbelievably moving about what indignities people have had to suffer and violence and the very fact of mentioning it in public was a kind of uh, against a, a, a taboo of all kinds so I that and, and I think somebody you talked to you quoted as as saying that actually the testaments were in some ways one of the most radical performative aspects of the procedures but what I want to ask you also just finally is that um the, you talk briefly about the archives, the, the records of it all. And clearly uh, for historians, for contemporary activists and so on, that isn't just of historical importance. It's interesting because it tells you something about the genealogy of the Tunisian state. And if you're trying to address it, to radically reform it, you need that genealogy. What has happened to them? So to get a sense of how accessible are they, how publicly available. But thank you really very much for such a terrifically interesting and, and I think uh, fruitful book in, in, in making us think about Tunisia uh, in all sorts of interesting ways. Thank you so much, Charles, for, for these comments. I, I took lots of notes and I have lots of things to say. I don't know, Yavor, should I um, directly um, jump in or should we take questions first? Well, my instinct is that in the interest of the time, if you could sort of pick something that you sort of strikes you from, from Charles' very rich comments uh, as particularly important and without trying to uh, sort of condition you in doing that, I just have one sort of add on to his questions, which I think speaks uh, to wider debates and, and wider sort of really anxieties in the field of transitional justice, which are about the the interaction between the international and the domestic. And we, your, your work, I think, very usefully 
undermines this distinction and shows that the analysis, the power structures, the agendas, the actors are actually often spanning those two. And perhaps one thing that has changed in transitional justice compared to the third wave transitions in Latin America or, or Eastern Europe is that domestic actors who are pushing for justice are able to find powerful allies. And so that changes the balance and that shifts us from a situation of act of silence or absence of justice uh, uh, as, a, as a consequence of negotiated transition in that earlier phase of transitional justice to this much more contested, much more conflictual uh, sort of constellation that you convey where some domestic actors that are pushing for justice are able to find uh, sort of international allies and in particular moments that results in movements in that, uh, in that field. But equally, I would like to ask you, do you, to what extent do you think that uh, sort of um, change that you see over time in terms of the traction, the support, the, the sort of power of the, of the transitional justice project in Tunisia is also a factor of a broader shift in how international actors engage in the region uh, following the experience of the Arab Spring, the lessons that have been learned. I'm referring here particularly to a sense of of sort of abandoning the aspirations, or in some cases, dismissing them as utopian of building a democracy and, and promoting human rights in the region, and a very often a very narrow focus on stability. Uh, the way Europe, for instance, has started to engage with the region and seeing it as a buffer uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, its own migration priorities, or the way other actors have looked at the region in terms of the war on terror. So to what extent is the sort of the, what we're seeing in the politics of transitional justice, that interplay, that intersection that you capture so well between the domestic and the international, to what extent this, this reflects wider changes in the interaction of the international and the domestic around questions of democracy and aspirations for democracy as something that, uh, th that we're seeing more broadly. Yeah, thank you, Yavoit. Um, this is also very interesting. So I, I think I would start with this blog about like the interplay between the, the domestic and, and the international. And, I mean, as, as Charles said at the beginning, so there, there were all these, um, yeah, I call them ad hoc measures, um, but but these justice measures that were directly introduced um, after the revolution and that didn't have anything to do with like planned internationalized transitional justice. Um, but what we could see later on is that um, there were an effort of integrating um, these measures into the broader transitional justice project. So, I mean, there were some, some ad hoc like reparations that were somehow um, being paid off. And, and then there was always this assumption that, that that would later be integrated into like a broader um, reparations um, process that, that, I mean, officially there is a reparations fund, but no reparations have, have been paid basically. And, and the same with the, with the trials. Um, so these um, these um, trials or these violations that, that have been, been started at that point in time, there should have been an opportunity to also um, like um, bring, them, bring them up again um, at the specialized chambers um, uh, in the Tunisian court system, which have also been provided for um, in the transitional justice law. So they are separate, um, but linked with the Truth and Dignity Commission. So the Truth and Dignity Commission could transfer cases to them, but also the judiciary could transfer cases to them from these earlier um, 
um, earlier justice processes. So um, th th there was an attempt of, of bringing these uh, things together and of integrating the early justice measures uh, within the broader project. But then of course, um, as it was designed, as Chad said, I mean, 60,000 people submitted their files um, um, claiming um, to be victims. Um, the, the commission managed to hear um, almost 50,000 of them. Um, so, so this was all like quite a lot to do. And um, <clears throat> I, I think what I um, would like to um, highlight here is that um, um, especially early in the process and, and I'm um, like, yeah, at, at my early field research, people were already saying um, transitional justice is delayed in, in 2014. And, and, and there was this, this um, I mean, one of my interview partners said the sentence, like transitional justice is already delayed without even having started yet. And so this was before the Truth Commission already started its work um, because uh, people saw this revolutionary window of opportunity already closing down. But um, this whole internationalized project had just started to gain traction, and and you had this, um, yeah, you had these these um, um, you had the support from from the international organizations, and and they were actually like um, yeah, developing developing the law, but then then also helping set up the Truth Commission, and and there was financial support as well, and. Um, and, and with regard to in, in how far um, or to what extent the, um, the, the there was this this interplay between these different actors. Um, so one of um, the Tunisian transitional justice professionals who worked for an international NGO, but like, um, she was Tunisian. She said, actually, I mean, um, we try to make suggestions, but um, they are not always heard. And, and um, also with regard to the law, the law was developed in this consultative process, but then it was altered by parliament. And, and one of um, the things that parliament did was that they um, kept the prerogative to nominate truth commissioners to, um, to themselves. So um, the internationals would have uh, liked um, to have a um, procedure in, in which civil society um, can also uh, be part of nominating truth commissioners, but parliament said, no, actually, we're doing that with a parliamentary selection commission. So there was this whole debate about like, that parliament made the process even more political than it was already from the beginning. Um, so, so this is also how I would say then the cleavages and the interests and alliances, they became more cross-cutting. They were not like the internationals here and the Tunisians there, but the like civil society was very unhappy with this move by parliament so they they tried to actually like rather work with the internationals um so so we could see like the, these these different uh, alliances to to somehow push the process uh, in um in a direction that that people would um, would prefer to do um and and like now linking this briefly to to Yavo's point um in in Tunisia i mean I, I would say that um, the internationals, they basically had to change their stance towards working with the government if they didn't want to alter their absolute position towards transitional justice. And um, this was something um, that I heard that they found um, that was new, new to them, that they actually at some point had to take a stance kind of against the government um, with which they had worked or with like with a predecessor they had worked beforehand, but um, and, and in Tunisia, I think um, 
at least the the, the actors directly working on transition transitional justice they they try to to push this forward still um i mean of course of course there there was a focus on stability and and also on on this migration um question but um my impression is rather that um, the like former president Esepsi was trying to use this notion of stability to rather undermine the project. So it, it, with regard to the public hearings, for example, um, he tried to, or at least this is the, the narrative, tried to somehow block these public hearings taking place. And then there was a um, like great investment conference that it should, um, should take place um, during the same time. So um, they kind of moved the hearings um, to the suburbs so that they wouldn't disturb the big investment conference. Um, and, and the narrative why that happened was basically because um, it would convey an impression of um, instability um, if, if we have these things going on here in the middle of Tunis while there's an investment conference. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I also had a, um, I had an, an interview with a um, like a UN um, staff member in in New York at some point, um, where they were concerned about like human rights developments in Tunisia, and it was in 2015 where he said like, yeah, we are sending the High Commissioner for Human Rights now because we want to show uh, we are also taking we are also caring about these things. Um, so at least um, at the beginning, I, I would say that there was not. Um, outright abandoning of, of pushing for democracy and human human rights um, and towards stabilization, at least not from these actors I've been engaging with. I think this may change now. And of course, you're right with migration. The issue is different. Um, but one also has to say that, um, yeah, I mean, um, I haven't dealt so much with migration in, in these questions. And last point before we go to the question um, with regard to what Charles said and, and the like the temporal dimension of transitional justice and what can it actually deal with. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, so the, the mandate is to, to of, of the Truth Commission was to deal with things up until the end of 2013. And, and you're totally right that the problems um, have remained the same. So there's this nothing has changed narrative. But the people are different, right? Who are protesting now, or who, who have been protesting um, over the last years, um, rather than those who have been protesting in like 2008 or or 2010, 11. And um, then the question would be, what what can it actually um, do for 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 these like younger people? Um, and um, I mean, if if we would be optimistic, then we would say um, if the process would do what it's supposed to do, then it would actually change structures and it would change the system. Um, I mean, I think we can rightly be skeptical about that, but um, right now, I mean, we see that there's still engagement also from like um, the International Center for Transitional Justice, for example, and they try actually to bring in um, these actors that are actually not part of the mandate, like the Kamur movement, for example. They they invite them for events and and to engage and and somehow bring up these questions and and keep the debate open. So, um, yeah, I, I would say, um, I, I mean, realistically, um, the outlook that it can actually do something is not very good. But there there is some attempt to to broaden this notion even further and and to engage with um, with with actors that that um, currently have the same problems because yeah, the problems haven't changed so much, yeah.
I think I leave it here right now. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, so what we have now is a set of questions, both from Facebook uh, and uh, from Zoom that I will, I think, take collectively and add on them sort of a small question from myself and, and let you address them together uh, in the interest of, of time. One question from, uh, from Facebook um, is about the main factors that in, in your view had led to this hostile situation in Tunisia. Presumably what is meant is incre increasingly hostile or inhospitable situation in terms of, uh, in terms of transitional justice. Um, some interesting comments that we're getting uh, uh, and, and sort of uh, questions. So Marianne Lanza from Lund University in Sweden, uh, very grateful for your interesting presentation. Uh, she mentions that in her own research, she has focused on the very negative impact of this complicated and demanding free trade agreement between the EU and Tunisia. Uh, particularly on the Tunisian labor market and social aspects and how that was an important reason for the events in, in 2011. Uh, and she wonders whether your work in any way engages with these sort of socioeconomic aspects uh, of both sort of preceding and following the, the events of, of, of 2011. Uh, and then a, a sort of a comment, an interesting comment from Hamid Salhi, um, Again, very grateful for your presentation. He says, I'd like to add some historical information about transitional justice in Tunisia. One of the earliest programs of transitional justice there was initiated in 2005 by Freedom House. Uh, it was led by Mr. Mohsen Marzouk. Um, some institutions of civil society in Tunisia were, uh, joined the project as did the Arab Institute of Human Rights. Uh, Aukawakibi Democracy Center and Tunisian professors from the International Academy of Constitutional Law in Tunis. They were the pioneers, uh, Hamid says, of the transitional justice in Tunisia and the region before the Arab Spring. After the fall of the Ben Ali regime, those persons became uh, assumed key positions in the new regime, chief of cabinet of the president, minister of foreign affairs, president of the institutional committee, etc. And they had and they were the ones who had initiated transitional justice uh, in the country. And the program uh, run by Freedom House was called New Generation. Uh, and it was, it was a regional program in character covering Tunisia, uh, Algeria, and, and Morocco. And then just to add to these sort of comments uh, and question, this, this, what is really, I think, useful in your approach, uh, both to the study and sort of interpretation of transitional justice processes is this dynamic understanding that you are conveying the interplay of a variety of actors, but also of sort of factor, a variety of factors, domestic uh, and others that, that shape uh, that shape transitional justice outcomes, uh, if you want. And, and that uh, sort of uh, dynamic understanding, I think is coming through from more and more cases um, where people who were very negative about the prospects of transitional justice in a particular case, 
20 years ago, all of a sudden we are seeing in these places a resurgence of these questions in the public domain, for instance, Latin America, because of some similar factors that you described in Tunisia, a lot of, particularly the countries of, of the Southern Cone had to terminate effectively prosecutions and other transitional justice measures or turn to truth commissions as a substitute for accountability. Fast forward, we are seeing now a huge growth in, in recent years of human rights trials dealing with those, those past human rights violations in, uh, in Latin America. Uh, and one question I have uh, regarding Tunisia is what do you think might be useful from the current processes, the ones you, you have studied, the ones that, that you have sort of researched for, for opening up these questions, but also for supporting future transitional justice processes in Tunisia. Um, I've been doing some work again on the Balkans, revisiting some of these questions. And what we are finding very interestingly is that the sort of the products, the outputs of criminal prosecutions, which were the dominant form of dealing with the past in the Balkans, both at international and domestic courts, although they, the, the sort of their outputs are very contested by the current elites, they're being used by victims, by civil society, by memory actors to create sort of digital uh, memory practices and, and projects that are contesting the dominant narratives and sort of uh, interpretations of the wars and the abuses in the 1990s. Uh, and so one, one sort of question is, what do you think from, from the, the current processes that have been pursued to the extent they have, you think might provide that sort of opening, but also a catalyst perhaps or material in practical terms, archives, records, video testimony that might be useful uh, in the future uh, by, uh, in, in sort of used strategically by perhaps a next generation that opens up these questions in different ways. Thank you, and uh, good uh, that you also bring up the archives again, because I hadn't answered the question from the last round, I have to uh, say. Um, yeah, I, I um, so I, uh, looking at the, um, yeah, um, at the, the, the free trade agreements, I mean, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, of course, there there is this understanding that um, structural adjustment, um, like uh, economic reforms, um, these kind of things, that they um, all contributed um, to the uprising in two thousand eleven, because um, there was, um, I mean, on on the surface, there was an impression of of like growth. Um, but actually, um, growth uh, didn't benefit um, the broader um, population. Growth just benefited a few people. And um, and uh, with regard to the EU and 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 the, and the free trade agreement, I mean, um, so I, I actually I have to admit I, I don't know what the current status of it is right now. But um, while I was doing research, I mean, the um, I think it was called La Liga. So the 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 like supposed to come about new free trade agreement was constantly debated and also um yeah critically debated as something um that um tunisians would question uh, whether it would be a good or a bad thing right and um i mean i was at one event with the trade commissioner the european commission trade commissioner um 
where she actually tried to explain that this would benefit Tunisians. And then um, you had someone presenting opinion polls um, where, where Tunisians would say they are, aren't actually so sure whether one should go for this um, free trade agreement because they don't necessarily think it would benefit them. And um, small anecdote as a side note, um, at that same event, um, I had there, there was an, an angry group of, of parliamentarians who were invited for um, a conversation with the trade commissioner, um, but um, the parliament administration somehow hadn't um, forwarded the invite. Forwarded the invite, and so um, they were complaining about the lack of institutional functioning. And um, so, yeah, I, I think this is the only thing I can I can say about that. And um, mainly, as, maybe as a side note, and it doesn't have to something to do with the EU, but um, the Truth and Dignity Commission actually tried to um, get reparations from the IMF and the World Bank, or they um, requested it um, because they they are trying to establish a link between um, dictatorial violence and and lending and and saying that like um, structure adjustment um, led to uprisings and that led to like brutal crackdowns and human rights violations and so they're trying to like establish a, a chain of responsibility basically in that regard um, so this might be might be interesting um, <clears throat> yeah thank you also for for the comment and the historical background and I mean of course um, Kawakibi has been uh, involved also um, I mean I mean really um, like uh, as a representative of Kawakibi in the law drafting process in the technical committee and um, um, but then also um, after 2011 was mainly uh, Wahid Fashishi like a law professor a Tunisian one who um, explored uh, for the International Center for Transitional Justice how to how to engage in in the country and um, yeah, maybe just now going back to um, Yabo's questions and, and uh, Charles' previous questions uh, um, about the archives. And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there there is lots of data. Um, there are, um, there are um, audio files, video files, um, paper files. And um, the last time, um, I engaged with the issue. Um, there was a controversy about where these um, archives would be stored. And um, maybe I start going back to 2014. Um, I interviewed um, a civil society representative at that point in time who said that she wouldn't file um, her case or she, she wouldn't, yeah, she wouldn't. Um, sent her file to the Truth and Dignity Commission because um, she would be afraid of what would happen with the data uh, and the files um, as soon as the political situation changes. And, and that was 2014 already. And unfortunately, one has to say that um, her worries might, might be justified because um, <clears throat> it is, um, I mean, they, they should be stored in, in, in the National Archives, but then apparently um, the president of the Truth and Dignity Commission decided that she would give um, some parts of the archives uh, to the presidential archives. And um, I know that there were lots of debates about like where to store um, all these data securely and so that it doesn't um, get into wrong hands. And um, I'm not entirely sure um, how this was dissolved now, um, but there, there were lots of worries about um, 
not only in, in terms of, of the richness of, of the historical account, but also in terms of um, what might happen to people if they um, have given testimony about things that um, people in power don't like, right? And um, so this also contributed to, to the trust issues and, and like the, the sudden wrap up of, of, of the commission and, and like not knowing what happens to these, um, these files. Um, uh, yeah, so like one of my interview partners, um, like a former um, truth commissioner, um, no, 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 like for my Tunisian transition desk profession, I just had to sort interviews in my head. She said that they are actually um, um, expecting like um, lawsuits because people want their files back. And that, um, yeah. Um, so, and I don't know whether um, anything like that has already happened or whether problems in Tunisia at the moment um, are somewhere else, um, which uh, um, could well be the case. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, what I think might really be important with regard to the opening is that um, the report has um, eventually been published in the official gazette. So it's it's part of the part of the record. I mean, there are lots of issues with the report. Um, so um, that um, there has been like meddling with the report. It has been altered after after it has first been published on the website. There are things that. Um, so, for example, like chapter on women and sexual violence, which apparently um, disappeared. Um, so there are issues with the report, but um, it has been um, published in the official gazette. So it's part of the state's records. Um, there have also been reparations de decisions been issued, um, but no reparations been paid. So there are some of these pathways that um, that might um, still be open if there is political will and um, I would also say institutional capacity to, to bring them, them forward. And then of course, yeah, looking further into the future, um, there's lots to learn as you already said for, from how this went. And I think both uh, in, in terms of what went well and um, what um, could have been done better. And, and I think looking back, um, one has to say that um, one of the biggest issues have been that um, the the commissioners um, they have been nominated by parliament and apparently um, may need to um, political considerations so that from the very beginning um, they weren't perceived as as being um, yeah impartial and and so there there were these trust issues right from the beginning and then I, I mean I think like some of them actually did good work and some of them were there for a reason but if you have clear criteria on how to nominate commissioners and then at the very beginning you already um, undermine the criteria by nominating people who um, clearly um, don't fulfill them um, then it's not a good start, I would say. And, and this went through the entire process and there were defections like right from the beginning. And I mean, the conditions were actually quite good. So the commission had money and the commission also had time. And um, so what I could sense, like when I did the follow-up research in, in 2020, um, this is something that many found frustrating that there were actually 
um, conditions to um, do better work than what was actually done. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, um, Mariam. And um, before we close, I think we're over time, but I'm seeing that our participants are staying with us. They must be as interested in the in the conversation as all of us uh, are. And uh, just a final thoughts from Charles, if you have any uh, to sort of leave us with. And also uh, for uh, Mariam, where do you think you will be taking your work going forward? Uh, and sort of building on what you've done with, with the book and, and all the research that went into it, what do you think will be the sort of center of gravity where, where you want to take this, this project and, and process forward? So Charles. Um, well, just briefly, um, it struck me during the book, reading the book that the, um, the, you drew heavily on Norbert Elias. And the, uh, initially I thought this is curious and interesting and then I begin to see why that's the case. And I think you've made very good use of his writings actually in the sense of describing process. And what's come out of our discussion this, today is also the notion that it would be a mistake to look at the transitional justice process as a process in and of itself. It isn't, it's not self-contained. It's part of this larger process of sociological, socioeconomic change and of political contestation in Tunisia. So in a sense, Elias comes into his own, and you've made good use of him, to precisely draw out the sort of things that we've just been talking about, that this isn't just a flash in the pan. It isn't just the so many years in which the TDC was, um, Truth and Justice Commission was, was sitting. It actually potentially opens out these much larger questions, which in a sense, Tunisian politics and activists within Tunisian politics will be grappling with in the years to come. So many congratulations once again, and really good use of Elias, I think. Thanks very much. Thank you. Then yes, you have actually, the final word, Maria. Thank you. It actually makes me very happy that you, um, that you say that because, um, it was actually not so easy to find something that fits. And um, that helps me to explain, basically. I mean, also, you said it, you're like very critical of transitology. And I would also say transitology wouldn't have been able to help me um, explain um, what I wanted to explain. So, so yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy that uh, you found that convincing. Um, yeah, what I, what, how do I take this forward? Um, I mean, what I'm currently interesting is, and and uh, and what I try to do now is that I try to tease out more um, these these questions between um, yeah the supposedly technocratic logic of transitional justice and like emancipatory struggles, and in in uh, to what extent is there actually space um, for for it, and um, <clears throat> and and I, I try to do this like um, across um, different contexts, and and um, so this like. Yeah, um, the interplay between the the technocratic and the emancipatory, and 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 what can we can we observe, and how do different actors use different um, fora and tools and institutions, and and try to um, to to bring about um, bring about change, and um, and I I start this um, with where I actually like ended the presentation, and I, I cut the quote short um, with a like the radical notion, um, but. But it, uh, my interview partner, she she finished it with saying like radical in the sense of Angela Davis, so grasping things at the root. And so the question would be like in in how far can 
um, uh, can these processes actually uproot something? And um, and and is there some potential, or, or what do different actors think? Why why could these these institutions and processes help them, um, even if um, the what you what you described as outcome might not be um, obvious uh, from the very beginning? And and this is something I'm um, I'm trying to look at at the moment. And yeah. Well, thanks very much. I think you gave us uh, and sort of in the in the discussion brought out a, a sense certainly of the incredible richness uh, and sort of nuance and caution and care with which the book has has been assembled and, and researched and written. And, and I would really encourage both students of transitional justice uh, and uh, students of Tunisia, but also other fields, related fields uh, of politics conflict studies, uh, regional studies and area studies, international relations, um, to, I would encourage them to pick up the book because I think you open up so many uh, questions and sort of provide both a set of empirical evidence uh, that allows us to think through them, uh, but also raise sort of conceptual and, and theoretical issues that I think will be very, very useful. Just one that we haven't had a, a huge amount of time to talk to, uh, to talk about, but really came through, is this notion of the linear transition as a way of thinking about these processes. And I think Tunisia in that sense is paradigmatic and representative of the situation across the field of transitional justice, where we're finding situations where justice has to coexist and perhaps in some sense also uh, catalyze um, sort of very problematic, very difficult, very contested processes where, where sort of the transition uh, itself is, uh, is constantly challenged and, and questioned. Uh, and a lot of transitional justice today, I think, occurs in this gray zone between conflict and peace, between dictatorship and, and democracy, very sort of dynamic uh, and, and shifting, uh, which, which I think makes your focus on process and on really sort of um, understanding the factors that, that shape that process incredibly important. So thanks very much, Mariam, for, for sharing um, your thoughts and, and sort of ideas uh, with us. And thanks very much to Charles for commenting. Uh, thanks to the Middle East Center for bringing us together for this conversation and all our participants who contributed with, with comments and questions. I would encourage all of you to pick up the book and to continue uh, to follow the events at LSE Middle East. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And hopefully see you in London at some point or in Berlin. We are looking forward. We, we have to continue the conversation. <laughs>